Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us with the most precious thing you have, your time. That's what we do, what we do here. We turn down the noise of the news cycle. And right after a midterm election, boy, howdy, has there been a bunch of noise. So today, to turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the information we need, better discern the times we live in, let's go to some receipts. Yes, receipts. See, believe it or not, this is actually not the first time we've had a midterm election, although people seem to have short memories. So let's go back to the last midterm, 2018. Let's bring some receipts and see how people did with predictions, because guess what's been happening since the midterm elections of Tuesday night? People are automatically chiseling in stone what it means for 2024 and beyond, which is silly because plenty of things are going to happen between now and then. So let's go back. 2018. What did people say right after that 2018 midterm election? How right were they? How wrong were they? Let's put a little perspective on this. Let's start with Politico. All right. This is November 2018. Now, we're going to link to these. You can go read them yourself. Don't take my word for it. Uh, This particular piece is Stephen Shepard, but we're not really here to call people out because, look, we get things wrong. That's why we have right and wrong here. We're going to bring on some of our people that did our predictions. We're going to go over what we got right and wrong on this year. Very program. Here's political. Here's an interesting piece. Um, Their number three was Democrats may have lost the Senate until 2022. Well, that didn't happen. They actually got it back in 2020 with a tie-breaking vote because Joe Biden and uh, Vice President Harris, Vice President Harris being the tie-breaking vote. So they actually got it back in 2020, only to what looks like as it sits right here, lose it again in 2022. So they were a little bit off that. Interesting note here uh, from the piece. First, Democrats will struggle to hold Alabama. Senator Doug Jones seat. They didn't. They lost it. Democrats lose Alabama. They did. They'll need to pick up five seats to flip the chamber, which six if they don't win the presidency. They actually did that. It's hard to find that many solid opportunities on the 2020 map. The only Republicans up for re-election in the states Hillary Clinton won were Cory Gardner, Susan Collins, David Perdue, Joni Erst, Mitch McConnell, Tom Tillis, and John Cornyn. Of course, David Perdue famously was one of those um, flip seats out of the Georgia recalls that was such a mess and was kind of the precursor to what we've got going on right now. Another interesting one in this political quote is Democrats patched the blue wall. Remember, this is Politico 2018. Uh, Listen to this. In Michigan, remember, this is 2018. Democrats won the governor's race. The incumbent senator was reelected and the party picked up a House seat and the second seat is leaning their way. In Iowa, Dems picked up two House seats, though they lost the governor's race. In Wisconsin, Walker went down and Senator Tammy Baldwin won re-election. What's happened since then? Iowa's getting more red and Michigan, which was Trump's thinnest margin of victory in 2016 and one of his key losses in 2020, now has a blue trifecta and the state's trending more blue, interestingly enough. 
Funny how things change, don't they? But let's not pick on just Politico. Let's go to NPR. Let's see how they did. And honestly, they did a pretty good job here. Remember, again, this is 2018. Their headline piece on their piece titled What 2018 Could Mean About the 2020 Election Map, Florida, Florida, Florida. Very astute here. Florida is the most critical swing state in the country. Both Republicans and Democrats know the importance. Florida, Democratic strategist Steve Scott argued that even Democrats ultimately aren't victorious in their two statewide contests. The fundamentals of the state haven't changed. It's still a very evenly divided state that is still up for grabs in two years, though Democrats still have work to do. He acknowledged that both DeSantis and Scott did well reaching out to Hispanics. In two years, if he keeps doubling down on fear of immigrants and revoking his birthright petition, talking about Trump here, an analysis said Florida's playbook found DeSantis did 16 points better with Cuban voters than Trump did in 2016. Florida is ever-changing with a growing Latino population, which doesn't always vote Democratic, and ever-increasing influx of white retirees that lean more conservative. Let's pause right here. The old joke about Florida being retired, Northeast folks, especially New York folks, one of the things that some of our friends down in Florida actually pointed out is the fact that most of the retirees are coming from places like the Midwest, the Rust Belt, other parts of the country is a huge factor in why Florida is going red, and it went red. DeSantis won huge and he flipped a lot of those Latinos with that same gap they talked about right here. It's very astute. They were a little bit off about it being a swing state. Florida's not a swing state. It's one of the most solid red states in the country now. Looks like it will be for the foreseeable future, but they did pretty good here. Their second one they did very well on. Listen to this one from 2018 NPR. Pennsylvania problems. The state strikes the most fear in Republicans after Tuesday election may be Pennsylvania. Again, this is 2018. Trump won its 20 electoral votes by 44,000. In 2016, it was a big part of breaching the blue wall. That's in quotes. He pointed to Republican Governor Mike DeWine in neighboring Ohio as someone who was able to do that, while Pennsylvania GOP Senate nominee Lou Beretta and Republican gubernatory nominee Scott Wagner could not. Of course, Mark DeWine just got reelected in this election. And guess what else happened? Pennsylvania, the governorship and the Senate seat that was up, John Fetterman and Shapiro, respectively, both won, both because they were running against, quite frankly, unfit for office, unqualified candidates. And even with Fetterman's issues and all the mess that went on there that we've already covered more than I really want to, to be honest, they won. Pennsylvania's back to being blue for a lot of these very reasons. Uh, let's go to The Guardian. Uh, again, these are all 2018 in November, right after the election takes on what they thought that would do to 2020. It's good perspective today because everybody's telling us what 2024 is going to be already and how off they can be sometimes. Let's go to The Guardian. 2018 again. Listen to this. We're going to talk about Pennsylvania. This is interesting. Um, a crucial test for any Democratic nominee in 2020 is, what are your chances of carrying Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin? And if they're good to excellent, you got a good choice. If they're not, you're a terrible choice. What other your other merits would be? Of course, this election, Pennsylvania went back blue. Michigan is now even more blue, gone back from being a swing state in 2016. Wisconsin, Ron Johnson has survived, but it's very much a swing state. I would pay attention. Following this logic, some argue that former vice president, remember this is 2018, Joe Biden, born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, is ideally placed to win back blue-collar voters and go toe-to-toe to Trump. Others contend that a septuagenarian white man steeped in political establishment would send the wrong message at a moment when the party elected more women and people of color than ever before. Bill Whalen, a research failure at the Hoover Institute think tank in Palo Alto, California, and a former speechwriter for Bush Quayle, said elections like fashion come as a matter of good tailoring. This year, Democrats tailored their candidate to individual race as well. When you think about 2020 as choosing a candidate, 
who makes their heart go a pit-a-pat or a candidate who can amass 270 votes. And Joe Biden, in a nutshell, I think that's the difference between somebody like a Warren and a Joe Biden. Common sense dictates you find somebody with blue-collar appeal that Joe Biden has and who is not wedded to the kind of progressive ideas the middle-class America does not want. Well, that was perceptive because 2020, of course, Joe Biden surprised a lot of folks, me included, and won. Let's go to CNN. Again, these are all 2018 headlines coming out of the midterms. What they did and didn't get right. Um, two years after the trauma of Trump's, Trump's shock defeat of Hillary Clinton, Democrats could dare to dream again. They won the House. Remember, the CNN 2018. They won the House, which will change hands for the third time in 12 volatile years, by performing strongly in suburban areas where Trump's flaming rhetoric is really toxic. They also attracted a higher proportion of younger voters than the last midterms and will change the face of Washington. Quote, we have the beginning of a new Democratic Party. Younger, browner, cooler, more women, more veterans can win in Michigan, can win in Pennsylvania, can win in Ohio, said Van Jones, CNN commentator. It may not be a blue wave. It's a rainbow wave, he said. By the way, they ended up getting 41 seats in this election. Remember, this is 2018 we're talking about here. We're getting a little perspective. One potential pitfall for Democrats will be to hold Trump to account without being seen as overreaching. After all, some presidents like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama had tough midterms, but leveraged attacks by Capitol Hill foes to help them win election. Trump, who loves nothing more than to identify new enemies, will be a formidable opponent. Within minutes of their victory, other Democrats were already threatening to go after Trump and to probe into his business interests, including his tax returns. It's, by the way, still an ongoing case. Jerry Nadler, who's slated to steer the House Judiciary, Judiciary Committee, warned that the election was about accountability for Trump. He's going to learn that he's not above the law. And of course, they went on to impeach him not once, but twice. Neither one resulting in a conviction. Funny how these things work out. Let's do another one. You're going to like this one. Again, these are all 2018 headlines. This is Vox. Winners, Donald Trump. Remember, this is from 2018, right after the midterms. Party leaders tell you rightly that this mostly reflects an almost comically unfavorable map and in no way undermines the sense that the overall results of the election was a strong popular rebuke of Trump. Nevertheless, the fact remains that Trump's personal focus during the closing months of the campaign, remember this is 2018, was on defeating incumbent Democratic senators, and he pulled it off in an unprecedented way. And while losing the House is a death nail for Republican Party's legislative agenda, Trump himself has rarely seemed to care about the GOP legislative agenda. Indeed, the death of the GOP legislative agenda could even be good news for Trump politically, since much of the agenda was toxically unpopular. An expanded majority in the Senate, meanwhile, will let Trump do things he actually cares about, like replace cabinet members and other executive branch officials who displeased him, while continuing to keep the judicial confirmation conveyor belt that's so important to his base moving. Trump's personal unpopularity, of course, is a problem. But while it's always tempting to assume that a president who suffers midterm blowback is doomed to failure, the pattern of 96 and 2012, when presidents bounced back from midterm defeat and in many ways benefited from the contrast, is actually more common one historically. We know how that one worked out. He got impeached twice. He bogged down his presidency. Then we had things like the Georgia runoffs and other things. After the fact, we had January 6th. We had the mess of stolen elections. And now we're back to 2022 with him threatening to run again in 2024. This is all just perspective stuff. We wanted to go back because everybody's telling us what's going to happen in 2024. So just wanted to give you a little perspective. Some folks had it pretty close. Nobody knew that January 6th was coming or nobody knew that all the election mess was coming and nobody knew that things like the Georgia runoff were coming when it came to 2020. Nobody knew that Joe Biden once would be dead and gone and buried and then turn around in the space of about three weeks and sweep the nomination and then go on to become president. People didn't know that. I had that one wrong. A lot of other people did too. We don't know what's going to happen in 2024. 
We don't need to. We don't even know what's happened in 2022 yet. It'll probably be a week or two at least, if not longer, if we do Georgia runoffs. It'll be at least the end of December. Calm down. Settle down. You don't have to put it in stone what all this means in the future. In fact, the narratives and the way the media works, they're going to immediately want to do a horse race. Trump versus DeSantis. Biden versus Trump. Because it makes the narratives easy to do. But you're going to miss a lot of the lessons of this election. You're going to miss a lot of the nuances. And you're going to miss how our country is always changing politically. Political parties are changing. Ideologies are changing. And you need to keep up with those changes by paying attention to those nuances, not just immediately jumping on the next narrative that's going to drive clicks and viewers for the next two years going into 2024. It's one of those things we do here. We're going to turn down the noise, try to pay attention to what's really going on, and try to keep a little perspective so we can keep our bearing so that we don't miss the important things of what's going on, like how our country and politics are changing. More Hurtel right after this. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Okay, one other piece from the midterms that needs to be addressed because it's all over the place. What do we do about Donald Trump and the next big thing? Second part of that in just a second. First, interesting little tidbit here. Uh, credit where credit's due. Uh, this is from uh, Credit Where Credit Is Due. This is from Howard Mortman. Uh, on the Twitter during his victory speech, J.D. Vance specifically named 34 people for thanks gratitude. And Trump wasn't one of them. You saw it all over social media, people on the right blaming Trump for everything that went wrong in the midterm. Now, it's a little simplistic, but there's truth to it, too. If you go all the way back to the Georgia runoffs in 2020 and the collective mess that the former president drags around and the chaos he sows, but that's not really the point of what we're going for here. Why would people who two days ago were all on board with former President Trump to get elected, looking at you, J.D. Vance, all of a sudden abandon him? Because the political winds are shifting and these feckless people like J.D. Vance are going to move right along with them. They're all going to jump on the new hot thing. Everybody seems to agree in the commentariat that the next big thing in the Republican Party is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Now, he won very handily, almost 20 points, which, of course, Charlie Chris losing his third statewide election with his third party designation, which is really impressive. Proud moment for Charlie and his family. So, of course, he's getting a lot of national press. He's also getting a lot of shine from people like California Governor uh, Gavin Newsom, who has decided to pick fights publicly for his own fundraising and national profile with Ron DeSantis. And the media seems to have also ordained him. And now a bunch of people on the right 
sensing that Trump is electorally toxic and no longer going to be viable, are running, not walking, to the Ron DeSantis camp. Now, here's where we need to talk to Governor DeSantis for a minute. I'm going to give you some unsolicited, mostly unbiased, mostly informed in my humble but accurate opinion something. Ron DeSantis right now, today, he's getting crowned a little too early, but of course he's got political prospects. He needs to treat a lot of these people a lot like the Powerball winner is going to have to treat friends and family. When you win the lottery and you win big money like that, people that you think of your friends and family are no longer your friends and family because they don't see you as a peer. They don't see you as a friend. They don't see you as a family member. They now see you as an income stream. They see you as money. They see you as an ATM. They see you as their future prospects. They no longer view you really as whatever person you had been up to that point. Being the next big thing for the Republican Party, especially when you're trying to fill the void that a personality like Donald Trump has been inhabiting for the better part of the last six or seven years, is going to be a tall order. But everybody wants that. The establishment wants that. The money people want that. The political people want that. The news media really wants that because they need the next thing to be the ratings hub if Trump starts to fall off or not bring the ratings he used to. And everybody seems to agree that it's going to be Ron DeSantis. All these establishment people, all these people on the right, the former Trump people who will abandon ship and go running for the next big thing because their money train is going to be ending. They're all going to go running to Ron DeSantis, and he should look at them the way the Powerball winners and the lottery winners look at friends and family members that they can't really trust. They're just there for the hangers on, and they're there for the money, and they're there for the ride, and he should be very discerning who he listens to, who he takes on in the inner circle, who he thinks gives him good and bad advice, and who he lets bandy his name around in an official capacity. It's going to be hard because the floodgates are open. They're all going to come running now. But that's the best comp I can give you. It's not a political comparison, but it's a good comparison. His world has completely changed now. He's not just the governor of Florida anymore. He's a presidential candidate in all but name until he comes out and says, I'm not running, or he comes out and says, I am running, and it cranks it up even more. He needs to start acting like it now because a lot of money people, a lot of important people, a lot of people that whisper in your ears and give advice and warm your way in, they're all going to treat you that way, Governor DeSantis. And we're going to find out a lot about what you're made of, by which of those people you take on board, who you listen to, and how you conduct yourself. And that's something that po folks will judge you on if you decide to take the step and run for president. A lot's going to be decided right now, and it's not in the political sphere. It's not in the policy realm. It's not even really in the ideological realm. It's how you conduct yourself right now. How do you handle success? tells us a lot about character. Governor DeSantis had a very successful night. Everybody says so, it seems. We'll see how he handles it. More hotel right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, we know this feller, but it has been a long time since we've seen him. It was all the way back to the beginning of the year. It doesn't seem like a boy that's 2022 just flew by. Kenneth Shrupp is back. Uh, he does all kinds of PR consulting and stuff. He's also a Young Voices contributor. Going to talk a little education today. Kenneth, good to see you again, my friend. Hey, thanks for having me on again, Andrew. It's been a long time. Uh, it's good to see you. How's things out there on the left coast? Well, uh, we're, we're in for a new mayor, most likely, here in Los Angeles. Uh Overall, weather is lovely, but crime is up, roads are falling apart, homelessness is rampant. I'm happy that things can maybe be turned around. Yeah. 
um city council people are getting recorded that kind of happened that was a little bit of a mess <laughs> um let's let's start there california is always kind of on the edge of politics good bad or indifferent it just is it's you know the world's sixth largest economy by itself it's very populous you got la but then you got you know inland empire then you got norcal and socal two places that couldn't be any more different if they wanted to be you being in california what kind of perspective does that get we talk about east coast west coast bias and everything from politics to sports to news coverage what is the kind of the viewpoint of dc and that stuff from sitting out in la right now because i gotta imagine it's different i know i lived in vegas just the time zone alone changes your perspective give me your perspective on what's going on in politics just real quick while you got you are you talking about on a national level? Um, let's just let's just look at Congress. Imagine you're a congressperson and you, you you're in Virginia, you're in New York. You can take the train home every day if you want. You can take the, you can come visit your constituents whenever you want, or you can even work mostly out of your home office. If you're in California, it's not really an option. You have to be. You rarely will come home, or you'll rarely be in D.C. Those are your two choices. Uh, what this lends itself to is extremely secure leadership that uh, doesn't really have to worry so much about primaries and can go campaign on ridiculous things. So it's no surprise that California's federal legislators are some of the most radical progressives in the country because they never really have to go home and they don't really have to answer to anyone. As long as they have the D next to their name, they're going to keep winning. So uh, <laughs> for asking what my perspective on California national politics to the ones of California, it's these. This is the consequence of a one-party state where you don't have ideas, bad ideas, sufficiently challenged by organized opposition. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective, and I appreciate you giving it because we've been covering California a lot. Uh, labor regulation. Uh, they're doing cryptocurrency regulation. They got vetoed for odd reasons, you know, things like that. It always seems to be California pushing the envelope on these things. And that's good perspective. Why? Let's talk a little education. You've been writing about education, something else that, you know, California's got a little different ideas on. I want to start with the big picture concept because we sure learned this before anyway, but COVID really drove the point home. Education if you're not having outcome-based education where it's what are these kids actually learning in the education system, there's no amount of money thrown at this system that's going to fix it. And what you're going to be writing about, what we're going to be talking about today is just another example of it. But big picture wise, you start looking at, you know, what the illness is, not just the symptoms. Money never, ever solves educational problems. In a lot of cases, it actually ends up making it worse, don't it? Exactly. I mean, there are a lot of countries that spend far less than we do. We spend the most per student, um, as far as I know. I might, I might be wrong on that. You might want to double check me. Um, but in California, for example, I mean, the United States, we spend more per student on public school than the average private school charges for tuition. And yet the outcomes are very, very different. Are you telling me that the private school really does have more money? when the pro when the public schools spend more money and yet we're having such divergence of outcomes money is not the problem it's really how are we scoring these kids how are we engaging with parents how are we measuring success and what are we teaching them yeah you were writing in real clear education um it goes to the heart of this because it's where are you going to put your money now we know you know people that are advocates of school choice say hey we're going to fund the students not the system the system advocates are like well if you take money out of the system that hurts everybody 
there's good and bad points to all that. There's overlap in the middle. You highlighted something very interesting here where folks were talking about universal cash deposits. And you took the point of view, this really is going to kind of hurt everybody if it goes through the way some people are proposing it. Right now, the hot idea among the right, uh, for a long time, it was vouchers. Uh, voucher Vouchers didn't really take off like people wanted. Um, now that now that now people say they support quote unquote school choice. School choice can really mean anything you want it to mean. So I have school choice. I can choose to send my kids to public school. I can choose to send my kids to private school. That's school choice. Uh, today, though, people on the right are identifying school choice as temporarily identifying um, as dis- deciding to give people the money that the state would have otherwise spent on the public school and let them spend it on their own education spending. Um, And that would be a defined amount per state. uh, However much, everyone would get the same amount. Uh, There are a lot of problems with this. There are a lot of economic issues, first of all, and there are a lot of social issues. Social issues are the more terrifying ones. Economic ones uh, are just gonna be quite bad also. When you create a universal subsidy for something, you increase the price floor, right? So if you have a private school system like now, where enrollment increased significantly in the aftermath of COVID and parents are looking for new alternatives, uh, these private schools are already at full capacity. So let's say that you have a full private school, you're charging $10,000 a year, and you learn that every single student of yours is gonna get $8,000 to spend on education right? You don't have to exactly spend it on tuition, but most of the ESA money or education savings account, they call them savings accounts to imply that you're it's you're saving it. You're not. It's coming from the government. It's a deposit from the government. Let's, let's get that out of the way. That uh, if you're just getting $8,000, they know you're getting $8,000. They're going to raise your tuition by $8,000 because it's not costing them any extra. It's not costing you any extra. They're already full. So what are you going to do? Not pay the $8,000 and not have an extra seat for your kid? It's, it's absurd to think that this is not gonna have any impact on prices. We did the exact same thing with colleges. When you created universal student loans, suddenly tuition skyrocketed because you created quality and price agnostic demand. Um, surprisingly though, there was no such problem when these, account, when these lo- student loans were available only to lower and lower middle class people, people who really needed the money. The problem is when you make these things universal. Once soon as it became universal, tuition went from increasing just 11% faster than inflation to many times faster than inflation. And the same thing will happen with ESAs. Yeah, Ken Shrub joining us. You mentioned it. The key word here is universal means you're giving it to everybody. We all know, you know, this big boy adult conversation here. We all understand that if it's not universal, then you got to parse it out. Now you're going to have some type of a means test one way or the other. You're going to have some kind of discrimination one way or the other. And that's where people get really uncomfortable in education because now it feels like you're picking and choosing who gets this money. So this feels like one of those things where it's an either or. And, you know, a lot of things you want to try to reach middle ground on. There doesn't seem like there's going to be a middle ground in here because if you go for a middle ground from universal or not doing it at all, you're just going to end up in picking who gets money and who doesn't, and there's not going to be any kind of equitable, fair, and or non-conflicting way to do that, is there? No, it's really hard to choose who who is needy at that line. There's a family making with a household income of a million dollars a year, two kids. 
uh, maybe they probably don't need that subsidy, but a family of maybe one hundred fifty to two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year with four kids in San Francisco, you might on paper look like you're making really good money, but that money doesn't go very far out there. You might be really pinched. So how do you even? I don't. I don't know how you decide who gets and who doesn't get this subsidy. It's it, it's insane. Yeah, and we, you know, it's one thing to talk about these things in theory and on paper, like, oh, this would really work. We got an example here. You brought it up in your piece. We're going to link to it. Again, read the whole piece. He's got a lot of stuff linked in here, too. You want to read all the link stuff. They actually did this down in Arizona. How did it go when the Arizonans tried it? So this Arizona universal uh, subsidy is is newer. Uh, it was just passed in July. It was it was by it was limited to students with uh, financial need only. Uh, now it's been expanded to any 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 family and any student. Uh, as could be expected, most of the people signing up already had their kids in private school. So I don't really know. I, th I think it was seventy percent, seventy to eighty percent. It was one of those two. Uh, already have their kids in private school. So it's only really improving access for 30% of people. That That's still a meaningful improvement, but you're spending all of this money without really significantly increasing enrollment. There's also been academic studies within the United States of areas that have tried this. And let me bring up this quote for you uh, that, that really is shocking. Universal subsidies, quote, produce price increases, but no change in enrollment. And what's making things even worse is that Every single dollar of subsidies raises private school income by more than $1, which means that tuition increases by more than the subsidy because you increase demand so much. It's yeah. economics do not work out. They're good economics for education because here's the problem we get into, especially with public education. It's become such, you know, I think COVID proved how we treat education despite the rhetoric. It's a giant jobs program. It's a giant funding program. It's a lot of bureaucracy. How are we ever going to separate that back out? Because until you do that, the money pipeline, and that's what bureaucracy basically revolves around. It's a money pipeline. That's that's the issue. That's the money pipeline. So anytime you start trying to move money anywhere else, you're going to get pushed back. It feels entrenched and it feels even more entrenched when you look at programs like this is like, hey, the entrenchment's actually going to take this what on paper might be a good idea and actually amplify the problem. So there's a few tracks that I probably want to explore with this. The first is uh, what happens with public funding where with with, uh, with public schools. Um, up until 1965, there was very little federal funding for public schools. In 1965, the Department of Education was able to centralize materials for students and training for teachers uh, in exchange for creating funding, especially in low-performing school areas. As you could expect, though, all that federal money does is prop up very bad schools with terrible outcomes. There's this, it's more or less a jobs program for teachers instead of focusing on student outcomes. So that's where all this federal money in education really goes to. But there is a success model. Right next door, there might be a charter school. 
in these charter schools uh, the, that use for-profit vendors usually only get about $9,800 per student per year. Remember, public schools on average get $15,000 per student per year. And their, their, their educational outcomes are through the roof. So I know you say, well, you know, if you spend more money, education is going to have to be expensive. These, these uh, charter schools are showing us that education can be affordable and high quality. Yeah, Kenneth Shrubs joining us. I get into this conversation with our school choice friends um, often. Look, my I've had kids that go to public school. I've had kids go to private school. I'm all for school choice. But you also point out there's areas where there, even if you have school choice on the ballot or in the law, there may not be another school to choose from. 91%, you raise it in the piece, 91% of all students are still going to go to public school. So the idea that, you know, this is one of those Twitter ain't real life kind of things and Facebook ain't the way reality is. We can talk about school choice. The reality is most kids are still going to go to public school in some form or fashion. So the idea that you can't do the one and ignore the other, these things need to kind of go hand in hand. And I know there's the line out there about how, well, doing one always harms the other, and we can hash that out as well. Any kind of education reform really has to take both in. You're not going to replace the public school system with school choice. And I think that's something we need to address and be upfront about and then deal with the school, the public school system as it actually exists today. Is that a fair way to put it? Yes, it is. And I, I'd also like to maybe introduce a change of terms for you, a more honest term to use. We, we like to say, pretend like charter schools aren't public schools. They are public schools. Right. We should instead differentiate between union schools that exist for the benefit of teachers' unions not the students, and charter schools, then they all are public schools. So I'm a, I do support the public school system in as much as I support vastly increasing the number of charter schools that we allow for, shutting down these terrible, failing schools as soon as there are viable alternatives. We can't keep them open. Yeah. What do we do? That's the charter schools. What about private schools? Because you're going to get into an area, look, for a long time in this country, most private schools, and most of them are religious of one stripe or another. That's just the reality of it. A lot of them wouldn't take any kind of federal money or federal subsidies because they were afraid of, you know, having some kind of control issues or what the money would be tied to, this sort of thing. That barrier seems to have broken down some. But if we're subsidizing private schools, we're going to have to start having a conversation of what we traditionally think of private schools. You're talking about terminology. That terminology may have to change a little bit as well, right? It may. Um, if you if you look at private schools, the reason that they're cost effective is because they only charge, they can only spend what parents are willing to pay. So that keeps the idea, they, they, they can only teach what parents are willing to pay to have their kids learn. Uh, when you, as soon as you create these government subsidies, what do you think is going to happen to these private schools? It's almost as if these Republicans all believe that they're going to maintain control of government forever, and there's going to be no there's going to be no strings attached to when it comes to ideology or what you must or must not teach these kids. There will become a time when Democrats will take over these these state legislatures and use these use this money, use these subsidies to control the private schools and ruin them. Yeah, Kenneth Shrub joining us. Again, another, you know, adult conversation here beyond politics. When you have a private school and you're an administrator of a private school or you're on the board of a private school, 
the vast majority of your bulk time, unless you have some kind of really fat endowment is in fundraising. You're always scuttling to try to keep the fundraising going because you know, you don't have it. If you introduce subsidies to loop back to kind of where we started with this, now you've incentivized them to go after these subsidies because that takes, look, human nature is undefeated. These people that have to spend 80, 85, 90% of their time fundraising and doing all that. And that just wears you out. Let's all be honest. We've all had to do a kid fundraiser. Imagine doing that for your job, for your school, you know, 365. They're going to look at that as a godsend and they're going to look at that as the easier path. And that's going to change how they do things. That gets us back to where we started with you talking about the system gets inflated. They're going to start moving their budgets to fit those subsidies directly. That'll change their costs. That's And now in a private school or a charter school system, you're going to the same problems with the public school where the whole thing's based around funding instead of education. Is that too harsh of a way to look at it? Not at all. You're just replicating the, the problems of the union school system and the rest of the education system in our country. It's not we don't want to do that again. Dennis Shrupp with us. How do we break this cycle? Because again, we just went over it. The funding has overtaken the education side. I don't think there's any way you could honestly argue that in America. The funding is driving it because, well, they'll say, well, it's test score. Yeah, but the test scores are how you get your funding. So it's still funding. How do we break this cycle? Because obviously it takes money to do education. You have to fund it. But the funding is also, you know, it's almost like chemo in a, in a terminal cancer patient. The cure is killing you just a little less fast than the disease is, right? How do we right. break this cycle, man? Oh, that's a million-dollar question. I have one small answer to that. I think there there is some truth to what uh, the current crop of school choicers say. And I think that if you – the average – household for in California pays about $5,000 in taxes a year to the state. Uh, if you're not, if you have kids who are of public school age and you're not sending those kids to public school, you should be able to get the portion of your taxes back. The average household in California pays $5,000 a year in taxes to the state government. Meanwhile, California spends, let's just say $10,000 of state money per public school pupil. So if you send one one of your kids to private to public school in California, you're already getting a net benefit of $5,000. I'm saying if you are sending your kids to anything outside of the public school system, you should be able to get what the state would have spent on your on your student deducted from your taxes up to however much you paid in taxes. That means you won't get net $5,000. You just won't have to, you will have, the average household would probably have a net zero uh, tax for the year because they're saving the state $5,000. This would be one way to give people some of their own money back, but not more money than they actually did put in. It would be meaningful savings for many households, but it, would be, it wouldn't be universal in as much as proportionally scaled to what you put in. Yeah, Kenneth Shrupp with us. You ended your piece talking about something that I really want to talk about for a second. We, you know, we try to talk about not just covering the news, but how we talk about it ourselves, just on our social media and with our friends and family. You talk about 
how politicians on the right, they, they've latched onto the buzzword of school choice and they've latched onto the buzzwords in this particular case of, you know, we're going to fund private education, this sort of thing. Give the average person who maybe doesn't know all the philosophy and all the ins and outs of the school debates and maybe doesn't know the full ins and outs of the education system. Give them one or two things like, hey, when they use a buzzword, ask them this question to get to the heart of it, whether they know what they're talking about or do they really understand what school choice is? Or are they just saying the words or when they talk about subsidizing private K through 12? What's one of the questions or what's one of the lines of thought that they should ask those people to find out if they're really being sincere or if they're just going along with the trend? Like you say, this, this is a way that it's, this is going to backfire on folks if it's just a willy nilly thing. How do we talk about it better? I think a great question to ask people is what are Democrats going to do to the problem? going to do to the program if they take power in our state? How how can the state use this to control our private schools or our kids' educations? What's your promise to the people of our state to say that this is how this program is going to remain unchanged forever? There's a there's a thing in policy. It's like, look, if it doesn't work really at least partially well for both sides, it's probably not a great policy to start with. Uh, that's probably a good rule of thumb here. Uh, Kenneth Shrub being with us. Let me ask you one last question about this. Kind of to loop it back to where we started, though. Why do we get so tunnel visioned with education? Because here we are again, like, you know, I understand the kid part of it and the parent part of it. And people just get nuts about their kids. You got to give people a little grace when they're talking about their kids because they just lose a little bit of reason. I understand that. Why can we not see our education system as an education system? We so see we it as a political thing. We see it as all this other stuff. What 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 is it with us that's wrong with us that we can't just look at the education system and just make it an education system? Because we think emotionally about everything. We want our education system to do everything that we as parents have sometimes failed to do. We want our education system to teach our children the values that we're supposed to be te actually be teaching them at home. We want the education system to teach our kids essential life skills that we don't, that whether you know tax taxes accounting job skills uh citizenship all the things that society used to do outside of the school and government we're just offloading the responsibilities of everything onto the school system i'm talking with one of my friends some of my friends who do teach in the public school system if you're a teacher you have to do you, you're playing therapist you are you're, you're trying to help people deal with major issues inside their home people don't know anything about like the food they eat like it's 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 truly abysmal what's happened with education outside of the school so now we have to decide that everything that the school must do everything for us all at once and schools aren't made for that and they can't do that um so that's one that's one aspect of it cuz you you'll do anything for your kids but what if you don't know how to teach your kid anything? Parents are just vastly incompetent these days. They have so they don't have time to to learn how to do the things that parents used to be, used to do because they're working two jobs to afford ever increasing costs of housing and healthcare. Um, so that that's one aspect of it. Another I think is a lot of these school choice people care about the consequences. These are people who want politicians elected for just two-year cycles, and they'll climb their way up the ladder in politics and never have to deal with the consequences. They're going to have so much money that they don't care if their private school gets 50% more expensive. 
they'll be able to pay for it. They can afford to pay for pay past the consequences of their policies. All they want are votes. You know who the real swing voters in America are? Smart suburban woman. And if you're going up and you're telling them, I'm gonna give you $10,000 for each of your students so that they can go to a better school because we supported blocking down your schools, because we supported the destroying the curriculum with DEI and all sorts of nonsense, eliminating AP classes because AP is racist. You tell these people that you're just gonna give them money and, to, and they'll forget about everything you did to them. Uh, it's a vote buying scheme. Let's not forget that. Yeah. Money corrupts everything, even education. Kenneth Strupp with us. This is a conversation I think we're going to keep having over and over again. Look, my parents were both public school teachers for their entire careers. Um, you know, education is just something I've always been around. I've watched it change over the years. And of course, now as a parent and my kids are, you know, almost done with school, I've already got one out of college and the other, the youngest are in high school. COVID really broke people's perceptions of the education system. And I don't think we've really reckoned with folks how they've seen everything since then, because we told everybody in America what we thought about education, but I don't know that the education system realizes it just yet. Well, that's what the school board elections are for. Um, yeah. You know, public schools educate 91% of our students, and we can't act like just sending them to private schools can solve the problem. Nope. And not everybody has that option. We need to keep that in mind because this gets elitist really, really quick. Not every, very, very few people can homeschool their kids. That's a gift if you're able to do that and do it well. Um, I don't have that gift. I learned that during COVID the hard way, um, even with the school support. So everybody can probably do a little better on their rhetoric on this thing as we try to find better ways forward. Kenneth Shrub, always enjoy talking. Uh, it won't be as long next time we get you back. I promise that. We already talked about that. We're going to get you back on again. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with you until we get you back on Hertel again, my friend. Oh, easiest way to follow me would be to go on Twitter and type in Kenneth Shrupp. Uh, Shrupp is spelled S-C-H-R-U-P-P, -P, and I'll come right up. Thank you very much. Yeah, enjoy the chat. He's got a couple different pieces floating around right now. Check them out. We'll link to all this uh, and also to his page. Kenneth, it's a pleasure, buddy. We'll do it again soon. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Thank you. Oh, we're about to hurt to tell. Let's do a feel-good segment. Haven't done one of those. It's been a heavy politics week, heavy policy week. I love this story. Everybody went gaga over the $2 billion Powerball jackpot. But did you see the news about the guy that sold that winning ticket out in California? Let's go to Los Angeles Daily News here. Uh, this piece was written by Donna Littlejohn. Never mind the election or the rain. The big news, a newly minted billionaire is among us in a crowd gathered Tuesday morning, November the 8th, at Joe's service station in Altadena, to celebrate, a winning ticket was sold at Joe's Mobile Station on Woodbury Road, which has been owned by Joan Chiata for 20 years and for a record-setting $2.4 billion, according to lottery officials, that winning ticket. Chiata told a crowd of reporters and well-wishers clustered in front of his service station that state lottery officials called him the night before but only said some news would be coming in the morning. Lottery officials came here before I opened, Chiata said, who wore a yellow and blue lottery T-shirt that said millionaire made here. They said, congratulations. Whoever bought the ticket had not yet come forward, the lottery officials said, but the ticket matches all six numbers, 10, 33, 41, 47, 56, and the Powerball of 10. Someone, one lottery official said, has a very important piece of paper in his or her possession. Powerball rules require the original ticket, not a copy. 
be presented in order to claim the prize, said Kathy Johnson. They need to absolutely guard it, and this person hasn't turned it in yet. It's the largest in U.S. history. Chiata's take? $1 million for selling it. Ask what he would do with the money. He said he'd share it with his family, including his 11 grandchildren. Chiata, the father of five, came to the U.S. from Syria with his wife and first two children in 1980. No one else deserves this more than this man who's worked hard all his life, said son Danny during an impromptu celebration aired on local news. Chiata, 75, said he'll never retire. I love my work. Drivers honked as they passed the station. Some came in and take photos with Chiata, who said he's the luckiest person who had the ticket. He said he believes it's a regular and someone from the neighborhood, but it's unclear if the station knows exactly who holds the ticket. In an interview with Southern California News, he said the hope the winner was indeed a local. This is a very poor neighborhood, he said. The poor people deserve it. There was one final question shouted out, drawing loud laughter as a celebration at the gas station on Tuesday morning with the owner and his family, which helps him run the business. Are they going to be lowering gas prices? I love this story. Hardworking immigrant guy made a life in America. 11 grandchildren, five children. Been here since for 42 years. Gets a million dollars just for selling the winning lottery ticket. God bless him. Enjoy it. Hope those grandkids get big chunks of it. Love a good story like that. That'll do it for her till for today. I know we've been doing a lot of election stuff. Got a lot of heavy policy stuff coming up that we're working on. Important stuff needs to be hashed out. We're going to do it the way we always do it. We're going to turn down the noise, get to the facts, talk to knowledgeable guests. We love doing it. Let us know what you think. Hurtelshow, gmail.com. Hurtelshow on the Twitter. Make sure you're sharing us. Facebook, Twitter, however you do your social media. Uh, We'd love for you to share our program. We'd really appreciate it. Make sure you leave a rating and a comment. Make sure you're subscribed. Uh, whether it's on any of the podcasting platforms like iTunes, Spotify, or iHeartRadio, or on the YouTube page, we'd sure appreciate it. So until we talk again, wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you are well. We hope you're well fed. And we'll talk to you again real soon for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played.